0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're talking about risk. <music> Life, the universe and everything else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the winnipeg skeptics you can email your questions comments or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com show notes references and relevant links can be found at podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog Welcome to the show. I'm your host for the month, Ashlyn Noble, and on the panel today we have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Jam Newman. Hi. And Lauren Bailey. Hello. We do have some feedback from last week's episode, but in a fun twist, we're going to save it for a little later in the show. The topic of Risk is a huge one. It has hundreds of facets, and there have been many books written on the subject, and countless friendships have been ruined forever. Wait, that's the board game.
1: I- I've heard good things about Risk Legacy. I haven't heard of that one. No, it's uh, basically like events in previous games have uh, cascade effects and continue to affect uh,
0: subsequent games. Wow, that that sounds terrible, <laughs> terrible and bad. Considering
2: that risk games can last for several days if necessary, yeah. Like, Why that's... does it have to keep going on from there? Well, it,
3: yeah, you play D and D. What are you talking about?
2: <laughs> But that one's meant to last forever. Risk is ostensibly like a couple-hour board game that you play with
0: ostensible friends.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So on this episode, I'll be talking about how
0: uh, Risk is a terrible game and you should play Small World instead. That is a much better game. I agree. Uh, Anyway, we're only going to be able to cover a few of the many subheadings of Risk today. We all sort of intuitively know what Risk is, and the definition is pretty broad as well. It's the potential of gaining or losing something of value. And we as humans value all kinds of things. We value property, we value money, physical well-being, as well as abstract things like social status and quote-unquote honor that can become a big one in certain circumstances. Klingon society. <laughs> <laughs> kapla a risk perception is a whole sort of other topic which is the judgment that people make about the characteristics and severity of a risk. Humans are notoriously bad at accurately judging risk and we all evaluate risk in different ways using different criteria and I am going to take advantage of that by playing a game later on. <laughs> Ooh, oh I'm excited was lamenting the lack of a game earlier today. Oh! So you've just made his day. I thought I told you that I was going to make a game. You probably did, and okay. I promptly forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, things that are more or less likely to kill you. Which can you tell which is which? Probably not. Excellent. One of the things that makes people so bad at evaluating risk is the way that it is reported in the media. So how often do we hear headlines like X thing makes you 20 times more likely to die young without any kind of context to put that into? About twice a segment if
2: you're watching Dr. Oz.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe the risk is one in a million and X brings it up to 20 in a million. That's not really something worth worrying a lot about. But if the risk of something is one in a hundred and if doing... X thing makes you 20 times more likely to die young, you should maybe not do X thing. (laughs) Like, smoking is the (laughs) the, uh, poster child for this. So, too often, people see 20 times more likely and assume the latter rather than the former. Uh, This is relative risk, the ratio of probability of an event occurring, for example, developing a disease, being injured, in an exposed group, to the probability of the event occurring in a comparison, non-exposed group. Totally stole that from Wikipedia, because I could not explain it in my own words. (laughs) (laughs) Relative risk can also be used to sell garbage when it has a teeny tiny effect. For example, this product halves your risk of getting Y disease, when the risk of getting Y disease is super, super small to begin with. Humans are also really great at focusing on things they think they can control, while ignoring all of the risky things that happen every day that they can't control. For the most part, we can't control our genetics, the climate, our socioeconomics, our ethnicity, or the country that we live in. For almost all diseases, these factors are going to play a way bigger part in whether or not we develop the condition than whether or not we have a glass of wine with dinner. Something that, depending on the year, is something you should totally do, or something you should really not do. (laughs) Always have a glass of wine with dinner.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm with that one. (laughs) I'm
3: with breakfast. (laughs)
0: Uh, In some ways, this need to be in control of risk factors can play out in dangerous ways. For example... Parents can sometimes hear that vaccines carry risks. No matter how tiny that risk may be, they think it isn't worth it to allow their child to be vaccinated. At the same time, they ignore the risk of measles, chickenpox, or pertussis, which the vaccines protect against. Those diseases carry a much larger real risk, but the parent feels like they're less likely to occur, or that they at least wouldn't be the actual cause of the adverse event if their kid did get sick. It would just be a force of nature.
1: I feel like that's a big one. Like, we, when we're thinking about bad things happening like agency is for some reason really important to us mm-hmm. that's why the trolley problem is interesting mm-hmm.
4: yeah <laughs> uh,
1: and like the idea of causing harm to my child versus harm happening to my child parents have a lot of guilt yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you know this
2: constantly
0: <laughs> every day
1: <laughs> so like that's understandable it's tragic It's bad. It's calamitous, but it's understandable.
0: And if you could, you know, boil everything down to just the logic of my child has X percent chance of getting Guillain-Barre versus percent chance of dying of pertussis, you can see the logic in it, but you can also, like, I feel the, the feelings that these parents must have of if I vaccinate my child and they get some sort of horrible thing happen to them, then it's my fault. I did that to them. Yeah, like, I'm not even a parent, and I, I, I see that. I don't, you know, I, I feel like I would probably vaccinate my children anyway.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No matter what, honey, you would. Yes, but... Because <laughs> our children. But all those you.
0: feelings are there. So we're going to talk about some different kinds of risk. Laura hasn't had a nutrition segment in a while, so she's going to talk to us about some of the real and imagined risks associated with food. years. People
2: are not just worried about the things that they are doing, but the things that they aren't doing and the effects of both of those things on their health. So there's a lot of concern about risk with what you're putting into your mouth or or your body.
0: (laughs) Total tangent. Has that made your job easier or more difficult that people are like more interested in it?
2: Both? (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I'm gonna go with both because... (laughs) Some It's easier in a way that people are or more people are a little bit more engaged and they're open to conversations and they kind of want to make some changes or they they are interested in the idea that maybe there is a different way of going about things, especially because as a dietitian, a lot of people that I talk to are, you know, they need medical nutrition therapy. So there's some changes that need to happen. So it's nice when people are already interested in, in starting that thought process. But then it's hard because then they have read this blogger or that blogger and then it's like, okay, well, we have to sift through things and like, well, yes, that's true, but or mm-hmm. no, that's not. And, you know, well, maybe that's true for these people, but not for you or vice versa. Like food, and, yeah. You know, <laughs> so it gets to be, it's hard because then there's a lot of in- misinformation that comes in. And that's really where it comes down to. Um, when it comes to nutrition, a lot of the popular information or Uh, blogs and that out there are they're really fear-based and they're really risk-based it's all these things are going to kill you this is going to give you this disease that's going to give you that disease you know everything is good or bad and and that with food so never eat these foods always eat these foods so it's very coconut um, oil yeah yeah it's like this is going to cure everything and this is instantly going to kill you because of x y and z so it it becomes very polarizing and it's very like very risk-focused so, of course, most things that we do in life are not risk-free, right? And <laughs> Almost nothing, really. Almost nothing, right? We only, and as you were already mentioning, there's lots of things that we do on a daily basis that we never are concerned about the risk of. But now that people are interested in food, they're starting to question some of those things, but their motivation behind that is the challenging part. So what I see a lot of is that the risk in nutrition comes down to a lot of the naturalistic fallacy, Quite frankly, that's what it comes down to, especially because the push is really whole foods and less processed foods, which I'm on that bandwagon, don't get me wrong, but natural is not always better and it's not necessarily better. And that's where it really comes down to. So there's a couple of big examples of that. The f- foxglove salad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds
1: like a great idea. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Did you tell us for everyone? Yeah, no, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> not for everybody.
1: <laughs> Did you tell us for some small American flags for others? Yay!
2: <laughs> no, but uh, turmeric is kind of one like that right now. Mm-hmm. Turmeric for everything. Turmeric is going to cure this and that. And I mean, it's delicious and it makes everything lovely makes yellow everything color. Yellow, yeah. yeah, which is rice. which is, <laughs> which like is great. But it's and there's investigations for its anti-inflammatory properties, which is cool, but. That's kind of where
0: we're at, so... Wouldn't you need, like, a ton of it, though? Like, an yeah. unappetizing amount? Well, and that's that's the
2: thing when it comes down to a lot of food-based things. It's not as simple as just eating this food. Because if it was, then people would be a lot different. And the, the foods that are like that, we already know about it, right? Like, I mean, turmeric has been a commonly used spice, especially in certain cultures, for many, many, many years. So if in places where it's already heavily used we're not quite sure about it, then, you know, you would need a lot more. And it's not just turmeric itself. It's the active compound. And of course, when you're just eating a food, you don't know exactly how much of the active compound is in there, right? So that's why we end up with um, supplements or pharmaceuticals because it's purified and we know the exact dosage so we can actually predict things. That's why we do things instead of eating a foxglove salad.
3: (laughs) Oh, my foxglove, what am I going to (laughs) do? I made so much and no one came over. (laughs) All my
2: friends are dead. So one of the big risks that I don't think I'll ever stop hearing the end of, is the risk with artificial sweeteners versus oh. sugar. Mm-hmm. Coke Zero. <laughs> Whether it's aspartame, which is always the big bad, or, you know, um, Splenda or sucralose is, is the new big bad now. Um, whatever it happens to be, artificial sweeteners have carried this this aura of risk around them. So what ends up happening is people tend to really overestimate this risk of using artificial sweeteners. And so what's the alternative? Well, sugar or other or honey or other types of sugar-based substances. So then the thinking goes, artificial sweeteners are bad and dangerous. Sugar is natural, therefore it's good. There's a couple big problems with this, though. There may well be some long-term risks of using artificial sweeteners. We don't necessarily know. There's a lot of research saying that they're generally pretty safe, but there isn't really research saying that, you know, 50 years of use won't cause this, this, or this. And we're always researching more things. So I'm not going to say that they're 100% safe, but generally they're pretty safe.
1: And the specific fears that people are always mentioning, you know, cancer and rats, et cetera, that's, nonsense
2: yeah yeah like the big ones yeah like getting cancer from it or you know being poisoned from formaldehyde from your aspartame that's not going to happen that just it's it's not possible that is not a truth at all with it your
3: body has manufactured more formaldehyde in the since we've been talking about this segment exactly exactly
0: well and for some people it's like a migraine trigger but sugar is also a migraine trigger for some people or sunlight doesn't mean those things are bad. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Your biggest risk with aspartame is that really be aspart taste.
2: So there may be some risks from artificial sweeteners. But the thing is, there are really well-known risks of consuming a lot of sugar, whether it's white sugar or brown sugar or molasses or honey or corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup or brown rice syrup or coconut sugar or palm sugar or cane sugar or whatever you want to call it. Holy crap, she just rattled
0: all of those off without looking at anything.
2: That's how many times a day I talk about what sugar
0: is. What about stevia? Is that a natural one or an artificial one? I don't even know.
2: Stevia is an extract from the stevia plant. Like a cactus? No, it's like an herb, I believe. I've never actually seen one. It's an herb. It's a glycoprotein compound, something like that, that causes a sweet sensation on the tongue. So it is from a plant. So if you eat stevia leaves, you'll get that sweet taste. Mm -hmm. And then stevia, the product, is that... Compound distilled down and then added to fillers so that it can be used in baking and cooking and stuff like that.
1: I think my favorite uh, my favorite example was uh, I was it was either in a commercial or maybe maybe it was my dad, but uh, somebody was saying and uh, and coconut sugar is an excellent uh, sugar replacement. No, it's it's not a sugar it's replacement. Sugar. It's sugar.
2: <laughs> I told you about that, and it was from something that I was reading. It might have yeah. even been something like a tv doctor's show but i'm not sure yeah yeah coconut um, sugar is a great replacement no it's not it's sugar oh my god so there are really well-known risks of consuming a lot of sugar one of the biggest ones right now that um has received a lot of media attention is the increasing link between high sugar consumption and cardiovascular disease it's really really well known and really well documented in the evidence not to mention that a lot of sugar isn't great for other um, metabolic factors it causes an increased risk of developing metabolic syndrome if you have any troubles with your blood sugars it's really not good for you because it's going to make it even harder to manage those Um, it may even play a high sugar consumption may even play a role in developing some cancers in that so there's lots of well-known risks from consuming actual sugar. But frequently the message is, oh, well, I'm not sure about those sweeteners, so I'll just go back to the sugar. And it comes back to that natural. Sugar is natural. It doesn't matter. So are volcanoes and bears and arsenic, right? None of these things are great for us in large quantities.
3: And and only arsenic can be a sugar substitute in a bowl. (laughs) Exactly. This episode is just me wanting to poison people. So
2: so one of the ways that this often plays out is since we are look I'm looking at a bottle of pop right now, oh I don't I don't trust those artificial sweeteners. I'm not gonna drink the diet pop, so I'm gonna drink regular pop instead goes on to consume lots of regular pop with lots of sugar, which has known health risks. But the person believes that they're doing something Healthier than the artificial sugar. My body can do the natural stuff, it can't handle chemicals. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then another uh, very common one in the same vein is the butter versus margarine argument there. Again, butter is natural, so we should all use that, whereas margarine is artificial. Now, I will say there have been some problems with margarine over the years, and Mm -hmm. I wrote a really great blog post about it, (laughs) uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, margarine used to be full of things like trans fats. Trans fats are bad for us. We know that nobody's going to recommend artificially produced or factory produced trans fats. But if you're choosing something like a soft tub margarine, like your base cells or, or... Uh, something like that. Those are very, very low in trans fats. Whether or not you, whether you choose butter or margarine, there's lots of different factors to consider, but butter is not necessarily better depending on what factors you value more as well. The fact that it is natural and comes from cows does not make it
3: necessarily safer. So does manure. We switch back from margarine to butter simply because margarine makes popcorn soggy.
0: (laughs) a very important factor in our household.
1: Yes. No,
2: fair enough. And there's there's reasons to to use one or the other. You know, mm-hmm. I as I say in my blog post, like I grew up in a margarine family, so, so. to me, mm-hmm. it's just normal, and it's so much cheaper
0: than yeah. butter, especially right now. Yeah, it's gotten
2: really. So bad. it just it's hard to justify. Like well, I'll buy butter for certain things, but it's hard mm-hmm. to justify. And also because we're trying to use less dairy and everything, I save it for the times when it's really important mm-hmm. for us and. And that. So, and then there's the, um, there's further risks to go on with that too because, well, how is butter produced? How is margarine produced? What are the risks to the environment, to social issues, Mm -hmm. to ethical issues? All things like that based on both of those. So you can go down the line. Any
0: decision you make, you can go down a whole rabbit hole of associated risks. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) I just wanted to say uh, stuff you missed in history class is a podcast. And They did a really cool episode on uh, the butter and margarine thing. Mm -hmm. And I guess the weirdest thing I learned from that was that margarine used to be sold in a bag with a little yellow dye capsule. They weren't allowed to dye it yellow to start with, but you could massage the yellow dye through it in order to make it look more like butter once you got it. Yeah, the butter producers (laughs) had that, put that law in place.
2: Up until recently, or it may still be true... I'm not sure. But in Quebec, that was still true. Margarine was still white. It wasn't allowed to be because the, the dairy
0: producers had, had pushed through that legislation. So, And yeah. in Wisconsin, they still have a law on the books that they cannot serve you margarine unless you specifically ask for it in a public space. Wow. What? That's <laughs> <Yeah>. hilarious. <laughs> so like in restaurants, they cannot give you margarine unless you want it and you tell them that you want it. <laughs> That's really funny thanks dairy producers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's also some nutritional risks that people don't even know that they're incurring. And this happens a lot when we're following fad diets or um, Mm. following the advice of a lot of food bloggers to, you know, cut this out of your diet or cut that out or something like that. So one pretty easy example of this is when people, (sighs) dairy gets a really bad rap. I'm not going to say that you need dairy in your diet, but it's not that bad for you. Just give it a break already so it gets a really bad rap some people will say it'll give you every disease under the sun so instead of that you should cut out milk from your diet and then drink something like almond milk but of course processed foods are bad so you should make your own almond milk
0: (laughs) now then they're not fortified there you go (laughs) right so now
2: let's say that you used to drink three cups of dairy milk a day and you switch to homemade almond milk three cups of homemade almond milk Okay, that's going so to be pricey. <laughs> that yeah. is going to be pricey, but let's say you can afford it. So let's say that that's your switch. Mm-hmm. Dairy milk has eight grams of protein per cup, whereas almond milk has about one gram of protein per cup. So over those three cups, you're losing a lot of protein. Are you aware that that's the case? Is your diet making up for that? I don't know, right? Dairy milk is a naturally high source of calcium. And then it's fortified with vitamin D and vitamin A. It's got riboflavin, other B vitamins, other minerals in it as well. Store-bought almond milk is fortified with all these things, to the, all these minerals and vitamins, to the same level as dairy milk. Homemade stuff is not. So now you're missing out on all that calcium. Almonds, yes, they do contain some natural calcium, but not nearly that much. And they don't contain any vitamin D or vitamin A, things like that. So is your diet making up for these lacks? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So in the perceived risk of including the dairy in the diet and then removing that perceived risk, you may actually be incurring other risks that you're not even aware of.
0: Do you just need to eat more bread for the riboflavin? <laughs> uh, or just leafy greens and things <laughs> like that. It's just one of the only places you ever hear riboflavin is that it's, bread is fortified with it.
2: Yeah, is I it, mean, it's pretty seedless? hard to get... Yeah, it's pretty hard to get a riboflavin deficiency in our... in our. Uh, society here. It's definitely the one
3: that's the most fun to say, though. <laughs> yeah, riboflavin. It's great.
2: <laughs> and then there's other things where we overestimate the risk of a certain thing compared to other things. So again, it's kind of like the, the artificial sweeteners versus sugar thing. One common one is the perception that living with overweight or obesity is always less healthy, is always riskier than trying to lose weight so or than being lean. So... You sh- a person should always be trying to lose weight because their, inherent- their life is inherently incredibly risky living with overweight or obesity. And what we're finding is that's not true. You know, there's Yes, there's health risks, but there's also health risks with being a lean person who doesn't have a good diet and doesn't exercise and doesn't have good emotional health and all sorts of things like that as well. So there's far more to it than just a person's body size that doesn't say the risk. And we do know as well that a lot of attempts to lose weight are not permanent for various reasons. Uh, Things like hormone factors that cause you to be more hungry and less satisfied and also reduce your resting metabolic rate anytime that you try to cut your calories. So it becomes harder to maintain any kind of weight loss. Your body is fighting to eat more food to get back to the weight that it was. Of course, as we get older, it gets harder to lose weight. So as we try and lose weight over and over it gets harder and harder because, again, the body wants to gain weight. That's just what humans do. Health conditions, medications, the fact that a lot of weight loss diets are not sustainable or enjoyable kind of lifestyles. So for people don't want to keep them up because why would you? It's not enjoyable to live that way a lot of times. Unless you really like grapefruit. Right. (laughs) Because of this perceived high risk of living with overweight or obesity, there's very, very strong social pressure to try weight loss attempts that are increasingly risky and that can have actual negative side effects. So a lot of the things that are going on right now, because we're right after the new year, detoxes and cleanses, drink nothing but water with lemon juice and maple syrup and cayenne pepper in it for a week. Well, you know, you're going to lose out on a lot of nutrients there You might you might get really low blood sugar and have consequences from that You might have hyponatremia because you're drinking too much Because you're so hungry So there's a lot of actual risks with trying to lose weight all the time
0: Well, and the negative social pressure is itself a risk Yeah Because it is very stressful and horrible to be constantly the butt of jokes and... Yeah. Uh, Every little comment that, you know, my mother makes, for example, or whatever, it's it's stressful and it leads to a lot of issues with depression and self-esteem and yada yada, and those are very real and valid risks as well.
2: For sure, for sure. Um, and I think it's important to point out on that note as well that if you look at the research, a lot of it will say, you know, overweight and obesity are linked with poor mental health. It's not that being in a larger body causes poor mental health in most cases it's the social stigma and the social pressures and and that that you're lead living to in an it.
1: unfriendly society
2: absolutely mm-hmm. yeah that's and that's the big thing so that's a really good example of where people r- overestimate the importance of a risk of a certain thing and completely ignore the risks of the interventions for said thing
0: and people are willing to put so much time and effort into trying to lose weight when there is zero evidence that any diet works for more than a teeny tiny proportion of people ever. It just, it doesn't happen. (laughs) And it's, you're putting yourself through hell for, for nothing. And often you wind up with the opposite effect than what you intended.
2: Yeah. A really good example of some of the risks of trying Extreme things and working at all costs to lose weight is the biggest loser effect. So, for anybody who's not familiar, the Biggest Loser—it's a show. Contestants eat very little and do grueling amounts of exercise and compete to lose the most amount of weight over a set amount of time. During one of the seasons of the show, they they did a study of the participants. They saw where they were at metabolically, health-wise, weight-wise, all those kinds of things, and they followed them up over several years. And they found that now. Most of the participants have regained their weight, if not exceeded what their original weight was. Their metabolic rates are much lower than they were initially, because that's what happens when you go on starvation diets, and they're not any healthier than they were when they started out. So that's that's something to look into for a really good real-world example of what these kind of extreme weight loss attempts can do.
0: And people. that kind of weight loss and regaining and weight loss and regaining can be like super difficult, uh, can be really hard on your heart and your cardiovascular system. People have speculated that it is one of the reasons that Carrie Fisher died so young, is because she was forced to lose weight over and over again for different movies. Yeah, uh, that,
1: That's the episode seven you're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, she was pressured to lose weight for episode seven. Yeah. And she, mm-hmm. she, I think she refused or something, right?
0: No, she did. No, she did oh, she did. Oh, yeah. really? Hmm. And then she had a heart attack. I mean, we're not her doctors, we can't say anything to that, but it, it is a risk factor and it's something that affects millions of women. Mostly women. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: So I'm going to be talking about existential risk. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> And uh, I'm going to cover it in my usual, use a whole bunch of words, but only give a surface-level understanding of the topic, because that's what I'm good at. Uh, So (laughs) philosopher Nick Bostrom, who's the author of Superintelligence, which came out a couple years ago, classifies any worldwide risk that is not subjectively imperceptible as a global catastrophic risk so that's uh, that's our sort of super category and then an existential risk or an x risk is any global catastrophic risk with the potential to destroy humanity entirely to make human civilization unrecoverable
0: Can I ask a question? Yeah. What does subjectively imperceptible mean? You
1: can't uh, define what is or is not perceptible on a global scale in any real objective way. I think that's what he's saying. And so a risk is something... uh, That's a good question. I don't really have a good answer for you.
4: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: Uh, I I think what he's saying is there's no good objective way to define whether or not a risk is classified as um, objectively imperceptible. So he says, yeah, this is a bit subjective, but yeah, there you go. So quoting from Wikipedia, because this is, I think, my favorite line that I encountered during uh, the research for this segment. Researchers experience difficulty in studying near-human extinction directly since humanity has never been destroyed before. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) shoot. Oh, shoot. (laughs) So existential risks can range from massive asteroid impacts through supernovae all the way to, as we poked fun at in our last episode, the Rise of the Machines scenario. When speaking about threats to humanity's well-being, it can be difficult to compare existential risks to the less hypothetical everyday risks that we all experience, like driving a car, which is a known risk with some probability of injuring or killing us and perhaps others, but the relatively small risk of annihilating the entire human race. Uh, Similarly, when trying to puzzle out how to prioritize our scarce resources— when we're donating to charity, for example, it can be difficult to determine where dealing with existential risks figures in. Uh, We touched on this last episode in our discussion of effective altruism. When we donate to charity, at least a charity that is fairly transparent, doing something that is well-studied, we have a pretty good idea of what the benefit is. According to GiveWell.org, every $3,282 donated to provide anti-malarial bed nets saves one life while the cost per life saved for treating parasitic worm infections ranges from $676 to $1,614. The cost-benefit analysis isn't easy in a lot of ways. Go check out GiveWell's spreadsheets for yourself, but it is doable. With X-risks, though, things get really complicated, because not only are we in the dark about when or even if these risks could become reality, unlike malaria or schistosomiasis, which kill people every day, we're also not just talking about saving one life. We're talking about potentially saving all current and future human lives, although uh, affording potential human lives equal moral weight to actual human lives is complicated and not something that I really have time to get into. For this reason, some philosophers argue that existential risks should be subject to special consideration, regardless of how unlikely they are, because the downside of an extinction event is essentially infinite. And cost-benefit analyses start to break down when speaking of infinities. (laughs) So what do you folks think? How can we meaningfully balance these risks?
0: By
2: ignoring them. (laughs) Yes! I'm with Lauren.
0: (laughs) Well... um, I'm kind of stuck on the the malarial bed netting thing. I actually thought the cost to save a life there was much lower.
1: Well, the so the cost to prevent an incidence of malaria is much lower. But the cost to actually save a life because malaria is not, not you know, always it, deadly, in, yeah. not always deadly. Yeah. Again, it is complicated. Yeah, Check out yeah. GiveWell spreadsheets <laughs> because uh, as Lauren talked about in her segment, there are lots of different ways to measure the effectiveness and just saving a single life is a
0: pretty reductive one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I don't think that it's reasonable for us to just ignore all of these because some of the ones that I'll talk about have a pretty strong chance of happening within the lifespan of human civilization, Mm -hmm. but we need to find some way to balance them. I'll I'll, I'll get back to this topic. Why don't we talk about some specifics first, because that'll help flesh things out. So starting with astronomical events— Phil Plait's 2008 book, Death from the Skies, These are the Ways the World Will End, covered various astronomical events that could wipe out the entire human race. Sidebar, in my notes, I actually wrote astrological instead of astronomical. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of tough to get an extinction-level event from astrology, I'd imagine, but...
3: Well,
1: cancer. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> So possible otherworldly causes of human extinction include a sufficiently large asteroid strike, previously mentioned, a nearby supernova, or a gamma ray burst. Dr. Plate gives a 1 in 700,000 chance of an extinction-level asteroid hit happening during any given human lifetime, although these impacts are in principle preventable. So, you know, it's not a 1 in 700,000 chance of us dying by asteroid, for sure, because, you know, we can work to solve this problem nasa tracks any objects that are sufficiently large to be problematic so we would have decades to defend ourselves
0: if they see it
1: <laughs> yeah they're harder to miss they're not impossible to miss but something big enough uh, is pretty hard to miss
0: wasn't there one just a couple of years ago that they only saw like a couple of months before it passed us
1: so there was there was one a couple of years ago that there was no point at which they thought it would actually hit us. Right. Uh, there was a, a chance. I don't know if you're talking about Apophis, which was several years ago. But
0: that was There's one a chance that of a keyhole to, event. Yeah, yeah. That, that's um, not the one I was thinking of. Yeah, there was one a, a, a they didn't think few it was years ago. Hit us, but they were just surprised that they hadn't seen it before they. Yeah.
1: Did. yeah, yeah. It and I think that there there was one that went below the orbit of the moon. Like between the Earth and the Moon's orbit, which is fairly close as far as these things go, space being pretty <laughs> Very big, large. yeah. But re- regardless, we do have some ways to defend ourselves against an asteroid strike. This would probably involve influencing its trajectory with a spacecraft or a well-placed explosion, or sending a scrappy team of oil drillers to land on it and blow it up. I Note love that movie so much. This would almost certainly not work, but at least it would get rid of Bruce Willis.
0: Oh. <laughs> Killed by a fireworks accident, but still more probable than being killed on an amusement park ride or by an act of terrorism.
1: So, Phil Plait gives us about a 1 in 10 million chance of being killed by a supernova. Our sun isn't really a candidate for a supernova, but if any of the stars within about 25 light years go nova, they would take out our ozone layer and stellar radiation would do the rest. <laughs> There's really little plausible that we could do about that A gamma ray burst uh, is even less likely to hit us With a 1 in 14 million chance of a sufficiently strong burst striking the Earth in any given human lifetime And we would die in a similar fashion But Bruce Banner... Yeah, yeah, well, at least we get some hulks out of it, right? Anyway, the probability of humanity being wiped out by the heat death of the universe, on the other hand, uh, is basically 100%. It's <laughs> kind of like cancer that way, I guess. Uh, you live long enough, it'll get you eventually. As the universe continues to expand, it will approach a point of thermal equilibrium and maximal entropy, after which no life could possibly exist. Estimates vary, but we probably won't have to worry about it for at least 10 to the 100th power years. That is, uh, one with... 100 zeros after it, by the way. If it cheers you up any, uh, I can't imagine that our descendants at that point uh, would bear any resemblance to current humans by then, uh, if they still existed, which, on the other hand, they almost certainly won't. (laughs) (laughs) Before we move on to the non-astronomical risks, I should give special mention to solar flares and coronal mass ejections from our own sun. While they don't really qualify as an existential threat because the probability of them directly killing us is basically zero, they are a catastrophic global risk because if we see a direct strike from a coronal mass ejection, it would wipe out most of the power grid on one hemisphere of the planet and take out many of our communication satellites, which would be very... Very bad for civilization at this point in our technological development.
3: If that's Simon the Operator.
1: Yeah. The sun spits out between 1 and 15 CMEs every day, depending on where we are in our solar cycle. But there's a lot of empty space out there, so the odds of any given coronal mass ejection hitting the Earth are very small. But it will definitely happen, and probably soon Uh, Depending on your definition of soon. Does the Carrington event ring a bell for anyone? Nope. Alexis Carrington Colby? No. (laughs) So the Carrington event, uh, also known as the Solar Storm of 1859 coincided with the earliest observed solar flare, which was on the 1st of September 1859, the coronal mass ejection struck the Earth, bombarding the ionosphere with X-rays, although neither the ionosphere nor X-rays had yet been discovered. And this solar storm took down parts of the relatively new American telegraph network, reportedly shocking telegraph operators and starting fires in telegraph Mm -hmm. offices. Among the various astronomical events that can negatively impact human civilization as a whole, solar activity like this poses probably the most immediate threat. Developing robust power grids and shielding for our satellites could help mitigate the damage. This is something that we sort of need to get on. (laughs) Uh, I'll move on for now, but if uh, you want more information, you can check out Death from the Skies or the Bad Astronomers' Discovery miniseries, Phil Plait's Bad Universe, which was a lot of
0: fun. I'm curious what impact, if any, the people who sort of calculate these kinds of things put on so if we develop technologies for shoving asteroids out of the way the impact that that has on other technologies like how going to space led to a lot of cool things that we have now that we wouldn't otherwise so, is that factored in at all? I haven't
1: heard a lot of analysis of that, but it certainly would be a benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you have massive projects like that, the moonshot is the the classic example. You will always spin off new, interesting technologies with new applications that change our lives for the better. You know, your okay. microwaves, your microchips, your Tang. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I guess I was just wondering because we were talking about it in the context of charity. Yeah, last episode, whether that would be factored into your sort of cost-benefit, charity dollars going towards cool things.
1: Well, like shielding for power grids for yeah. uh, CME, like, that—that that is generically helpful. Same with shielding for satellites because mm-hmm. direct hits are not the only things we need to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as deflecting asteroids go, like, asteroid mining is a plausible near-future source yeah. of, of, of minerals, minerals and, and, yeah. So there are lots of reasons we shouldn't be strip-mining the Earth for those things <laughs> the way we are, so... Yeah. So let's strip mine somebody else's neighborhood. Well, I don't know. The asteroids, asteroids don't really yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so other potential existential risks, most of which I won't spend any time on, <laughs> include nuclear or biological warfare, which could wipe us out pretty quickly. A supervolcano, like the one that is currently lurking under Yellowstone National Park.
3: Yeah, that's or- late
1: or a, an especially contagious and virulent global pandemic which we've had a lot of worries about recently with you know your your SARSs and your flus and your uh, ebolas.
0: I'm surprised that that fits under this category. Like I guess it makes sense but it seems like it belongs in a different category of like health-based risks.
1: <laughs> so it's not I'm moving on from astronomical based risks no, but I know. Uh, but it is uh, it is an existential risk for humanity, right? Mm because you get you get something virulent enough you can wipe out enough people and that can very plausibly cause a collapse of civilization if not the death of all of all humans That's right, right. you don't need to kill everybody
0: figuring it was the death of everyone
1: want to kill all humans we're obviously looking at this from a pretty typical anthropocentric perspective but it's also worth thinking about the unprecedented existential threat that humans pose to other animals uh, I'm currently rereading Douglas Adams' Last Chance to See for the Winnipeg Skeptics Book Club, and it's a good reminder that humans are basically the worst things that ever happened to other animals, mm-hmm. <laughs> causing extinctions through pollution, habitat destruction, introduction of invasive species, over hunting, and over harvesting. We can also add massive, rapid climate change to that list, uh, which is also a global catastrophic risk to humans ourselves. Uh, Sure, we save some species from time to time, although two of these species that Adams and Carwardine visited are now extinct in the wild. But according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, nearly 800 extinctions were recorded in the last 500 years. Biologists estimate that human activity has increased plant and animal extinction rates by 100 to 1,000 times above their previous level. This ongoing mass extinction event that we are causing is called the Holocene Extinction, or the Sixth Extinction. I think that was the name of an X-Files episode. (laughs) Good show. No, that's not really true. Watchable show. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea of existential risk ties into some feedback that we got in our last episode from Darren McKee, host of the Reality Check podcast. He, uh, He left this comment on our page. Hi all. I was very happy to see you covering charitable issues and appreciate the shout-out regarding effective altruism. I think you got a lot of it bang on. That said, assuming as critical thinkers that you're open to feedback, there were a couple parts where I think you missed the mark, or came off a bit playfully dismissive without supplying evidence or reasoning to justify it. For example, X risks unfriendly AI, the supposed egoism... name a few. Just to cover Darren's last point first, I'm not personally convinced that egoism is really an issue for effective altruism advocates. I think that charge would land more squarely with David Brooks and those who argue for a charitable outlook that is simply internally ennobling in character. (laughs) Uh, But Darren certainly is right that we were playfully dismissive of the bad AI risk. In part, that's because we didn't have time to really cover it, and in part, It's because, you know, I try not to let the threat of a worldwide catastrophe get in the way of a bit of lighthearted fun. (laughs) But it's true that I, for one, am not actually that worried about it. While I do think that it's probably a grave long term concern, I haven't been convinced that it's a reasonable near term risk. I'm certainly not an expert on AI by any stretch of the imagination, but I am a software developer with an undergrad specialization in AI who's worked for a machine learning company for nearly a decade. Again, Not an expert, but I'm not exactly a layman either.
0: (laughs) But I know things. (laughs) Things that'll hurt you.
1: (laughs) I have a very particular set of skills. (laughs) Sorry, it's really hard to do a Liam Neeson impression when he's doing an American impression. But
4: what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you.
1: AI has been in the news a lot in the last few years, but when we talk about AI, it's typical to make a distinction between Artificial General Intelligence, AGI, which is also known as Strong AI. Uh, That's an AI that would possess a more or less full range of human cognitive abilities. And then the more specialized, uh, applied, or narrow AI, which is simply software that's designed to solve a specific task in an optimal way. HAL from 2001, A Space Odyssey, Data from Star Trek or the droids from Star Wars are examples of general intelligence, while a Google search, or an expert system that helps a doctor make a diagnosis, the way enemies behave in video games, or series, or ability to parse your speech and serve up relevant information, assuming that has ever happened to anybody, are all examples of narrow AI. The vast majority of AI development is focused on narrow AI because it is a far, far easier problem to tackle, And because it also has immediate, practical, read, market-friendly applications... There was an article in New Scientist a few months ago titled, Will AI's Bubble Pop?, which is something that I've been seeing a lot in the tech community lately. You remember how virtual reality was a huge thing in like the early 90s and then it disappeared for decades? Well, AI has been the next big thing in computing for going on 50 years, and we may be in for yet another AI winter where public interest and research funding will dry up when the results are not as impressive as the hype suggests. I do think artificial general intelligence will happen. I do think that we'll get there, and I am a little bit worried about it. But general AI is hard. As I told Darren, I would be astonished if any sort of general intelligence worth worrying about were to appear on the scene in my lifetime. Although, given my family history of heart disease, that only gives us a few decades tops. Seriously though, given the real suffering that is currently all around us, I see the hypothetical threat of AI as a lot less pressing. If our moral calculus gives equal weight to the hypothetical suffering of future people, as it does to the current suffering of real people, we're always going to be solving the problems of the future rather than those of the here and now. I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about those problems, but they do not seem, on the balance, to be the priority. And as Brendan, who joined us last episode, has pointed out, the more people we can lift out of poverty— the more people we will have who are in a position to help us solve the big, complex problems of the future. We talked a little bit about the potential risks associated with AI back on episode 88, where I covered Roko's Basilisk. It was a good pod, so uh, give it a listen if you want more AI discussion, or you want to give yourself some really weird nightmares. Uh, One of the things that some X-Risk analysts worry about with regard to AI is it waking up. That is to say, it becoming conscious. Does that seem like a a reasonable worry to you folks?
0: Like we were talking about, I think, on that episode, it means we're sort of guessing that it would have motivations and that those motivations would be possibly counter to human existence and yada, yada. Like there's so many steps that... Yeah,
1: there's a big chain of suppositions, right? And it is, uh, like some cognitive scientists are theorizing, that you can have a conscious general intelligence that doesn't necessarily have motivations or mm-hmm. drives in the way that a human does like we are very guilty of anthropomorphizing these other minds and as we talked about on our animal intelligence mm-hmm. episode like there are lots of different types of intelligences and it's not just one discrete thing like i i like h beam piper's little fuzzy but it goes so far into like dividing sapience into haves and have-nots mm-hmm. and il- trying to eliminate any gray area which just struck me as ridiculous anyway good book give it a read um <laughs> well he he uh, he made it public domain in his in his will i believe okay. so uh yeah you can, you can grab it for free on gutenberg
0: but yeah i'm not terribly worried about that because it seems like i mean first we have to get there and then i don't know i feel like it's something we can get there and then worry about
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
1: the, so the, uh, like the common counter to that is as soon as you get there, uh, you can realize you have an intelligence that is self-improving and, yeah. you know, you, you may find that you, you started up on one, you know, extra large Amazon EC2 instance and suddenly the entire Amazon network is filled with this intelligence and it's taken over the world
0: Sure. But- uh,
1: and the Roombas are, you know, bumping into you all the time. And that would be annoying.
0: But there are so many different ways in which that could manifest that we, I don't think we can prepare for all of them. So we might as well just figure out what happens and then deal with it.
3: Yeah. Chances are they won't even be concerned with us. Are we concerned about how the ants think? Are we concerned about ant civilizations unless they're in our,
1: like. Well, but that's the problem. You know, those ants sometimes (laughs) have resources that we can use. And what do we do to those ants when they're in our way?
2: (laughs) That's true. I guess. I was thinking along the same lines as you, Lauren, and I was thinking, I don't know, has anybody else seen the movie Her? So, the idea there is that there's this new OS that's super smart, and basically the OSs are so super smart that they just decide that they don't need to be around humans anymore, and they go find their own, like, digital space, and they just Mm -hmm. kind of like, no, we just just don't need you anymore, and so I kind of feel like it might be like that. Or that's a plausible reality, right? It's not necessarily, must cross humans! but it's like, no, we're just going to go do our own thing because you guys can't actually, you're not at our level.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: So waking up, developing consciousness might kind of be a red herring. It might be not the thing that we should be worrying about. After our last episode aired, Darren over at TRC posted an interview with Jim Davies, an associate professor of cognitive science at Carleton University, about programming good ethics into AI. Jim Davies argued that consciousness isn't what we should be worrying about. While it makes some amount of sense to worry about a machine suddenly making its own decisions and prioritizing its own concerns over hours, there are plenty of non-conscious things that are supremely dangerous. Viri, for example.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, even a non-conscious, super-intelligent machine that just, say, wants to, to, uh, to use uh, one of Bostrom's examples, make paperclips all day, uh, <laughs> could be a big problem uh, if we don't, say, make sure that it doesn't... Turn our entire civilization into a big pile of paperclips. Yeah. <laughs> so Davies points out that it's possible that a conscious superintelligent AI might be preferable to a non-conscious one because one of the side effects of consciousness seems to be a capacity for empathy, to think about our mind and other minds and the way they interact. But he also argues that we need to work on developing a strong ethical framework to guide any artificial intelligences that may develop, presumably something a little more robust than Asimov's laws. (laughs) So I'll link to that interview in the show notes, along with an article Davies wrote for Nature for listeners who want to learn more. There's a funny coda to all this. A writer for the Singularity weblog has asserted that far from protecting us from the threat of machine intelligence it is the AI risk analysts themselves who are the biggest threat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. So this take is uh, perhaps to be expected from a singularity enthusiast uh, who believes that the dawn of AI will usher in a post-scarcity economy. Scarcity is, of course, a very real and constant threat to humanity, and many in the utopian singularity camp see advances in AI as our best shot at alleviating all of that suffering. But... This writer goes a little further than that, comparing fear of AI to xenophobia and racism, noting that artificial intelligences would be the ultimate foreigners, and comparing those who seek to control AIs through programmatically enforced friendly ethics to slaveholders. Depriving AI of freedom via heavy chains repressing its brain, they write, is very dangerous fascism.
3: Sorry, I'm sure that wasn't supposed to be a joke.
0: <laughs> no, well, it's not. I, like, what What do you folks think? I, I have the same problem with this, is there's too many layers of what-ifs Yeah, that I don't think it's something that is reasonable to be super concerned about right now.
1: So from my perspective, I, like, I can appreciate this approach i do think that it's borderline maybe maybe actually way beyond borderline offensive to uh compare enslaving computers to enslaving people but granting the thought experiment that these are conscious entities like yeah that's that's a concern i mean brent spiner and robert picardo spent 14 years reminding me that humanity is not a prerequisite for personhood
4: your honor a courtroom is a crucible in it we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product the truth for all time Now, sooner or later, this man or others like him will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. Waiting.
1: But like the threat of AI itself... I find utopianism also highly unconvincing, especially on a short time scale like those uh, typically suggested by singularity enthusiasts. I simply can't bring myself to believe that AI is a realistic short-term concern either way. We can always spend more money and more time on long-term, far-off concerns. But we could also always spend our money putting out the fires that exist right now. There will always be urgencies that require our attention without any concern for the future. So perhaps a balance of concerns is necessary. I don't pretend to know what that balance is, but I think that the conversation that's going on right now is an important and valuable one. I just don't think we should assume, as technology enthusiasts, that all of the important problems are the ones that we have the special capacity to solve, which is the kind of rhetoric that I see from Silicon Valley folks a lot. And that can lead to my reflexive disdain for those positions. Now, I certainly don't fault those who donate their time and money to causes concerned with an AI threat, but their priorities are not mine. I agree with Holden Karnofsky of the Open Philanthropy Project when he says, I see much room for debate in the decision to prioritize this cause as highly as we are. And... uh, karnovsky himself is on the other side of this. He thinks that this is actually a pressing concern, and that's something that he's changed his mind about. That's another good article that I'll, uh, I'll just link to in the show notes, because I'm not very good at discussing things in brief. But <laughs> one of the worries that he points out is because this is a big thing that is being discussed in the EA community, there's kind of an effective altruism echo chamber effect going mm-hmm. on, and it's hard to know how big of a concern this really is. But the bottom line for me is that if I'm going to worry about existential threats, pretty much... All of the other ones that I've mentioned already are going to take priority in my mind over evil AI, whether or not it's blackmailing me from the future. (laughs) Well, hopefully that was helpful, because it felt like I spent the last 15 minutes waffling and waving my hands. Those who worry about AI, though, like Karnofsky and Bostrom, are in esteemed company. Bill Gates is also worried as is Stephen Hawking. Speaking of Hawking, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about, I promise, (laughs) the physicist made waves in 2010 when he cautioned against sending messages to the stars, supposing that Advanced aliens would perhaps become nomads, looking to conquer and colonize whatever planets they could reach. This is the position that he reiterates in the recent documentary Stephen Hawking's Favorite Places, comparing a hypothetical alien encounter with the meeting between Europeans and the aboriginal peoples of North America. But is this a realistic concern? The skies seem pretty quiet after all, but this quiet itself could be seen as ominous. Many scientists argue, quite convincingly, that we are probably not alone in the universe. That given what we know about astronomy, chemistry, and physics, there ought to be other civilizations out there. Perhaps it is a property of advanced civilizations that they tend to wipe themselves out. Maybe by, to pick uh, an entirely fictitious example at random, deciding to reignite a decades-long nuclear arms race for some reason. Or maybe it's something else. Imagine walking through a forest and suddenly realizing that all is still. No small animals rustle in the undergrowth. The trees are bereft of birdsong. All is quiet is only the wind. Maybe those other civilizations know something we don't. Maybe they know to hide.
3: work with risk on a day-to-day basis, not in any sort of existential way, but in ways that everything I do affects the corporation that I work for. So that's the kind of way I was looking at risk coming into this. I wasn't looking at existential risk. I wasn't looking at risks of global proportions. I've always believed and extrapolated from the data in my own life that people become more risk-averse as they age. You think you slow down, you become more risk-averse?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it has to do with age, but I definitely, I have a lot more responsibilities now, not necessarily because of how old I am, but because of the things that I have accrued in my life, the gravitas
3: of your life. Yeah.
1: You know, I'm not going to go and join a startup the way I did nine years ago, because like, I've got kids, (laughs) you know, there's more risk Mm -hmm. losing my job, you know?
3: Yeah. And that's kind of what I've got here too. Like I moved across the country at age 19 without a job or an apartment lined up. And I was like, Oh, we'll just go and we'll figure it out as we get there. And well, it worked, but
1: (laughs) I wouldn't take that risk now. There's maybe also something about like the arrogance of youth too.
3: Yeah. So I was curious about all of this. So I read some studies. Believe it or not, I actually did research for this piece. (laughs) I have studies for the show notes, Jim. It was difficult to find studies that weren't just about like financial risk, how you should invest your money. With that, they suggest that older people do more risky things Mm. to get the higher return. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the most comprehensive study that I found, it was a 2012 study, Risk Preference and Aging, the Certainty Effect in Older Adults' Decision-Making conducted by Mara Mather et al. Across four tests, they found older adults were more likely to go for a smaller sure-thing gain than a potentially larger risky gain, but were much more likely to risk a potential larger loss than go for a sure-thing smaller loss. Hmm. Where risks were the same, results were similar for both younger and older adults. The study also led the authors to develop their idea of the Certainty Effect, which is in their title, where, well, let me quote from the article because it's very difficult for me to sum up, the probability weighting function in Kahneman and Tvesky's Prospect Theory describes how people generally perceive or weigh probabilities. It suggests not only that people treat probabilities as nonlinear, i.e. people overweight small probabilities and underweight large probabilities, but also that certain outcomes, 0% and 100% chance, are perceived as categorically different and weighed more heavily than uncertain outcomes, i.e. any other probability between 0 and 100%. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Yeah. This latter observation has been coined the certainty effect, uh, Kahneman and Sversky, 1979. So I'm sorry, I had said earlier that the people doing this study coined that, but they got it elsewhere. So according to the certainty effect, in the domain of gains, because people overweight certainty, the gains are desirable outcomes. Overweighting a sure gain leads people to choose it over a risky gain. Conversely, in the domain of losses, because people overweight certainty and losses are unattractive outcomes, overweighting a sure loss leads people to not choose it over a risky loss. That is, the certainty effect, as coined, predicts risky aversion in gains and risks, seeking in losses when there is a choice between a sure and a risky option. Together with other research on the unique effects of zero in terms of motivation, social norms, and pricing, The certainty effect suggests that the way people compute risk-related information for choices between gambles that include a certain option are fundamentally different from choices between gambles without a certain option. Given that in other studies, older adults showed both a bias towards certain gains and against certain losses, older adults may simply exhibit a larger certainty effect than younger adults, rather than exhibiting a more general difference in risk-seeking tendencies. However, previous studies examining age differences and risky choices have not compared choices between two risky options with choices involving one sure option and one risky option. Consequently, it's not clear whether age differences are specifically about the certainty effect or reflect a more general effect, such as that, compared with younger adults, older adults are less risk-seeking in domain of gains but more risk-seeking in domain of losses. So that was a large word salad, and there's more, but I'm not going to quote it because that's a lot of their words and none of mine. But older adults are more certain in their...
1: Well, yeah, like, they're less risk-averse, and they'll, like, as they said, they'll take a certain gain that's small yeah. over a, an uncertain gain a- that's a- large, a yeah. but they'll take a gamble of a large loss instead of taking a certain small loss, yeah. if... which, like, is... Since middle school, like, I've just been... I, you just do the math. If there's, like, an outcome, if you have a 70% chance of getting $10 versus a 100% chance of getting $1, like... You take the seven. You yeah. take the seventy percent chance because your yeah. expected outcome is seventy percent, or 0. 0.7 times 10, ten, which is seven, seven dollars.
0: Mm-hmm. More than one dollar.
1: Exactly. Like yeah. the math is really easy, and you can do the same thing with losses. The only time that that's modified is if a loss would be catastrophic. You know, like you can take your expected outcome, but you know, like uh, like we we're talking about existential risks. If one of the two options leads to an unlikely outcome that would be catastrophic, versus a more likely outcome that would be maybe really bad but, but has com- no yeah. chance of wiping you out yeah. maybe you take that one instead you, and you don't, don't, don't just
0: one percent chance of mm. everyone dying
1: yeah no matter right. what yeah. the exactly. thing is <laughs> exactly
3: <laughs> there were some quotes included in the study from the participants when they were taking the small gain instead of the large riskier gain there was adages like well a penny saved and a bird in the hand and mm. Oh god <laughs> well, Folk sayings are the worst I know, but well, that's what these old people, older people were doing yeah. And when they were looking at things like the riskier They were calculating things like Older people are more likely to go for broke On say, experimental treatments They used hmm. cancer as, as one of the, the ideas Going, this cancer is killing you You're in stage 4 If you had to take the, just the pain management And go quietly So older people were more likely to go No, give me the risky chemotherapy What have I got to lose? And the younger people are like, no, give me the more sedate treatment.
1: Like at the same time, that's kind of understandable too, mm-hmm. you know, it- depending on your current quality of life, mm-hmm. you know, um, and also, you know, like some people will do that calculus. you got maybe five years left, you know, at this point, yeah. realistically, you know. Yeah. So
3: one factor I didn't see taken into account in any of these studies I read, because I read a few more of them and I will link to them all, was privilege. So how settled were the participants? What income bracket do they inhabit? Well, some were grad students and others were retirees. So, I mean, you can take your own bets, but looking back at my own cost-benefit analysis for major life choices, I'm starting to wonder if it's not age, because according to the study parameters, I am still I can still squeak into the younger group because they included <laughs> grad students that went up to 35, and I'm just a little bit older than that. But it may be complacency that keeps me personally from doing risky choices. And as Jem had mentioned before, it's the complacency and the
1: greater risk of losing everything. Starting over from scratch when you've got a bunch of stuff.
3: Yeah, I did it. It sucked. Yeah. And I don't want to ever do it again. Honey, please don't divorce me. <laughs> I never, ever want to do it again. Please. And sure, I could chuck it all and take up a job in my field in Ottawa. And Ashwin may also be able to find work in her field of study there. But we have a house and we have responsibilities. And we have a Dave who doesn't want to move.
1: And <laughs> I just threw the dig at Winnipeg in there? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I'm
3: also from Ontario. <laughs> This was my two-year stopover city, and I was on my way to Vancouver. And instead, I bought a house and became settled. And I'm also eight years into my current career. That's one of the last great middle-class careers. I've got a pension built up. I've got seniority. I don't want to chuck this away. Like, when, when I had my divorce before, when I said I lost everything, my mother asked me if I was moving back to Ontario. And my first thought was, no, I have a job. Why would I move? Why would I leave this?
0: <laughs> well, and that was right in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, right? So yeah, so that's
1: riskier. That's too.
2: everything. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. So toilet. you hold on to what you've got. Yeah, it was way. May
3: two thousand nine. Yeah. So it terrifies me to think. Well, I could go out and start another career, but like I know where my retirement date for my current job is, and I don't want to risk that. I don't yeah. want to roll mm-hmm. over.
2: Yeah, the bar ha- is quite high to yeah. to want to make that leap.
1: August 15, 2035. Watch for it.
3: <laughs> that's going
1: to be a big uh, day. That's only ten years before the singularity, according to this website I was just reading.
0: Well, damn <laughs> you'll it. You'll have ten years of retirement. That's cool. Exactly.
1: And, and then you'll have an infinite number of years of retirement until the heat death of the universe when you upload your consciousness into a machine.
0: Woohoo! Yay!
3: <sighs> Risk aversion in aging? Apparently it's not as drastic as I thought, and I'm just a curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I've always felt really risk-averse. That does
0: not surprise anyone. No. No, I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone's favorite segment of the show. We're going to play a game. Yay! And maybe I'll even remember to keep score so we know who wins. (laughs) Did we bring Um, the buzzers? No, (laughs) we did not bring the buzzers. We put them. We put the buzzers that we used for the uh, peril game, in the quiz show uh, show, uh, all around our house for the New Year's party. So randomly, we just hear like boing <laughs> coming from the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, she put one on the back of the toilet, one on the mantle, <laughs> just to see what be, if people would push them, and they did. So our quiz today is about various risky things and how people die, mostly. So. Eh, might be a downer. We'll Fox see. Club salad. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Question one. It is... I think they're all multiple choice. They are all multiple choice. There are six questions. 44 people die per day in the USA from which of the following? Overdosing on pain medication, shootings, domestic violence, or choking on food? 44 people per day. Let's start with Lauren. Choking on food. Okay. Uh, what was the third one? There's overdosing on pain meds, shootings, domestic violence, and choking on food.
1: Like, I'm already tempted to metagame it and go with choking on food because I feel like you're... uh, Get out
3: of my head, Newman.
1: Yeah, because that that is the most innocuous one to start us off. Shootings, I could see. As long as you can't police shootings in there. (laughs) No, I'm going to go with choking on food, too.
2: Okay. I was going to go with choking on food. I really want to. But then Jem started talking.
0: <laughs> so now, what are you going with? Choking on food. <laughs> okay, everyone gets it wrong. Oh. It is overdosing on pain meds. Yeah. See, I thought that was forty-four yeah. too people per day. Okay, so I, I thought it would be higher. Do you think choking on food is lower or higher?
1: I think it is higher.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, probably. Choking on food is 13 and a half a day. Oh, okay. So it's so, much lower. But so the same order of you? magnitude, though. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Most of these are the same order of magnitude. Um, shootings, higher or lower than 44?
1: I'd say lower.
0: I'm going to go higher. In the U.S.? In the U.S. Oh, that's
1: tough to call. Remember, they have 10 times our population.
0: Yeah, I was going to say and in big place. Like 46,000 times our guns. <laughs> 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 this isn't for points. I just I have the stats yeah. for yeah. all of them, so it's interesting. Higher... Ninety-three per day. Oh, my uh, God. God. Yeah. <laughs> but guns don't kill So, no, twice as many. That's a lot of
1: people who kill people, Laura.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All
1: uh, right. Oh, God, please don't send me emails. <laughs> it
0: was a joke. Domestic violence. Forty-four people per day die in the U.S. from overdosing on pain meds. Is domestic violence higher or lower? God,
1: I hope it's lower. I hope it's way lower.
0: I'm going to say higher. I'm going to say higher. It's much lower. It's six and a half a day. Oh, good. But that's still six and a half people per day dying of domestic violence. Yeah. Like, that's right. It's
2: it's a a relative good. It's not, like, an absolute good.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, all of these are much higher than I expected.
1: Just to psychoanalyze here, Mm -hmm. it is kind of interesting that we want... For some reason, like it's better that like more people are dying choking on food versus dying in other ways because it I don't know. Well, because it does seem more horrible, right? But you're <laughs> but, dead. You're dead.
2: But that's largely accidental, right? Accidental deaths are mm-hmm. going to happen, and it's again, it's the did I do this to my kid or did it just happen and to my kid? It's not yeah. an act right? of malice. Yeah, like domestic violence is not accidental. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. um, shooting people is sometimes, but still is largely not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 93. I don't think toddlers do mean to shoot their parents, but having unsafety and firearms around is going to have that happen
0: in the U.S. Ooh. Which animal causes more deaths on average? This is per year, um, and it's a it's a multi year average that I've taken here. Is it bears, snakes, bees, or wasps, or dogs? Let's start with Jim.
1: Oh boy, it's either bees or dogs.
0: Dogs with bees in their mouth. (laughs) Sorry. Did you
1: say bees or beads?
0: Bees. Beads? (laughs) Bees. Beads? Bees. (laughs) I I know I the rest of the development was good.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay.
0: Bears, snakes, bees, and wasps, or dogs? Um,
1: Both judging by physical. Okay, I'm going to say. Dogs, But I'm going to hedge with bees as my second choice. <laughs>
3: okay. I'm going to go with bees. Lauren. You're smarter than me. I am waffling on the same two choices, damn you. I'll
0: go with bees. And the ladies take it. Yay. <laughs> it is. Okay, so bears is on average one person per year dies. Mm-hmm. Snakes on average six yeah. in
1: the U.S. Th- this isn't Australia.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of snakes in the southern U.S. though.
1: Yeah. But it's not Australian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, dogs, um, on average, 28 deaths per year. And bees and wasps are 48. Oh, wow. Well, okay. So quite mm-hmm. a difference. I mean, a lot of anaphylaxis.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's just, it's
0: so quick. So now we're going to switch to a worldwide view. Which of these animals is more deadly worldwide?
1: Is it robots? <laughs> I think it's robots. Not robots. Okay. Yeah. Not
0: an <laughs> option. Again, this is a uh, yearly average. Is it snakes? Hippos? Crocodiles and/or alligators or dogs. Uh, this time we're starting with Laura. Oh, snakes,
2: hippos, crocs and alligators, and dogs.
0: Crocodilians. And
2: crocodilians, yes.
3: Oh.
1: Actually, does that include the gharial? Because we can't. We don't want to lump all crocodilians together if it only includes two of the major. <laughs>
3: How about the the caiman?
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. God, I don't know.
0: <laughs> um, dogs. Bees?
3: <laughs> Not an
0: option. Not an option. Snakes, hippos, crocodilians, and dogs. Okay, let's
3: go with dogs.
0: Okay.
1: I want to say hippos because they are assholes.
0: Sure are. And they're
1: super dangerous. Cartoons are lies, but still, like they're they're relatively like we're talking worldwide. Dogs are everywhere. Snakes are bad, especially in like Oceania and Indonesia.
3: Is that anthropomorphically
0: bad?
1: Oof. Well, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean,
0: they're just evil little jerks, especially yeah. in the Bible.
1: Yeah, like they, they. I don't, everybody blames Eve, but she was just a middleman, you know. Um, Answer
0: the question. Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm gonna quickly
0: now I'm gonna go with dogs. Dogs. Everybody goes with dogs and everyone is wrong. Oh, <laughs> Is it crocodilians? It is not. No um Snakes. crocodiles and alligators Snakes. are actually pretty Snakes. low. Okay. It's only like a thousand people per year who die, and most of that oh I can't remember the stats name. It's it's either mostly crocodiles or mostly alligators. I think it's mostly crocodiles. Alligators don't really kill people for some reason. Hippos are twenty nine hundred a year. So, oh. three times oh. as many as crocodiles that, and alligators. That is, like, the reason
2: I didn't want to go with hippos is because they're only in, like, one continent, yeah, whereas the other widespread. ones are spread out. So I'm like, that's, that's still an astonishingly yeah. high number,
3: yeah. considering that they're only on one continent. And they're <laughs> territorial creatures, so it's not like they're, like, lurking out there looking for you. Yeah, and they're, together. like, they don't and they're hide huge, in your house and murder like, you. They only hide in your house and eat peanut butter toast crumbs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Every, um, every Canadian kid wants a house hippo. Absolutely. <laughs> Want a
1: house hippo. Even um, I would put up with a house hippo.
0: So after that, it's dogs is 55,000 a year. And most of that is through rabies transmission. Mm, yeah. So in the U S and Canada, that's less an issue. That's why our is only 28 a year. But yeah, 55,000 people a year die from dog bites. Most of that is rabies. And then snakes, Hmm. top of the list, deadliest animal, 125,000 people a year die Uh. of snake bites. And of course, this doesn't include mosquitoes, which I obviously left off the mid-list because they're way more deadly than any of these. Yeah. How many of those snake deaths were on a plane? (laughs) Very few, I'm going to say. I
1: don't know, but you take out a whole plane, It's a lot of people on there. (laughs)
0: Okay, 450 people die per year from which of the following causes?
1: Uh, This is worldwide, or...?
0: I believe this is U.S. Okay. Yes, this is U.S. Using a vending machine, falling out of bed, hot tap water, or falling from ladders. And we're back to Lauren starting... Falling out of bed. Falling out of bed.
1: I was going to say falling out of bed, but I'm behind, and I need to gain it it. in order to to win. So I'm going to say (laughs) ladders. Falling off of ladders. I think it's falling out of bed though.
0: I'm gonna say hot water. Hot water. Okay, uh, and Lauren gets it. <laughs> Damn it! I knew that one. Jem did not game it correctly. Sorry, which one did you choose? Falling out, falling of, bed. out of bed. Okay. Yep. So, falling out of bed is 450 people die per year. Obviously, these are mostly very old or very young people. Is it now, Are they dying
2: from the actual fall, or are they dying because of the resulting hip fracture, which sends them to the hospital, which means they inevitably get an infection or pneumonia, and then they die there? Probably mostly the latter. Okay,
0: <laughs> but I'm <laughs> sure some people oh. do actually. I've yeah, worked but, and, in a long term care. Home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> For infants,
1: it'll also it'll mostly be the fall though. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, do you guys think falling from ladders is more people or fewer people dying per year than well? We then you already falling told us bed? that falling out of bed was the highest. No. The question was: Four hundred and fifty people die per year from which of the fall? Oh shoot! Okay, yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> More. I think it's higher. I think people are
0: really unsafe around ladders. We had to take all that training to do the habitat stuff. Uh, I, yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: <laughs> I thought that this was. Uh, why did I think that this was the most? Because you didn't listen. Uh, because I did not listen. I did not listen. Divorce is going to be expensive. <laughs> um, this divorce is going to be really expensive. <laughs>
0: So So stop saying it. Considering that you make a lot more than me. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: I'm, gonna say, uh, I'm gonna say more.
0: Sweet, sweet <laughs> I'm
1: gonna say more. More people
0: die from falling off of ladders. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say less. Less. It is less. Okay. Three hundred and fifty people die per year from falling off of ladders. Okay. That's honestly so close, very surprising. You know? I expect people to be really, really not smart around ladders. Yeah, and that's like And not, use like rickety ones. That's too. not even one person per day. Yeah. Falling off a ladder. That's, that's 93 bizarre. people die from shooting in the U.S. every day, and one person dies from falling off a ladder. That is a messed up ratio. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that any of these deaths are good. Like I said, this quiz is kind of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how many people are killed by falling icicles every year? <laughs> so, I, I'm actually just curious. Does anyone want to guess before I tell you the options? Well, looking at the super deadly icicles, we made Dave pull off the house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, hey, this yeah. is U.S. again?
0: Yes, where there is less ice than here.
1: Yeah, oh, that's, that's a good point. I'm
0: just going to say af and lot. Come on, bigger number. 73. 73?
1: Okay. Wait, every day? No, every year. year. Oh, every year. Yeah, because I'm like, wait, that like that would vary a lot by season. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Practically <laughs> like, none in all. Between zero and
1: uh, every year. Uh, I'm going to say 250. Okay. She's going to give us the actual numbers later. This is just a teaser.
0: Yeah, really, I'm just being a jerk here. Oh, God. I don't know. Ice a little swelling.
2: Sorry, is this the in Canada or the world? I in the that. U.S. In the U.S. Yeah. It was really hard to find
3: uh, statistics for Canada. It always is. Uh, you
2: said 250, Gem?
3: Yeah. I said 93. No, you said 73. 73. Oh, 73.
1: 73? This isn't for any points. This is... Yeah,
0: it's just Oh, okay, just like a guess. 100. Okay, I'm just curious what people think the range is. I have no yeah. idea. Okay, I... so the actual options that I put down are 350, 15, 2, or 47. Uh, I think we're at Gem to start. His face is really funny.
1: Did I tell you guys about the time that uh, I was... Jim, uh,
2: Jesus Christ, answer the question. I
1: I think I was like 10 or 11, and my brother was like 8. And we were outside... Uh, shoveling and i said hey sean stand over there don't look up stand over there it'll be really funny i promise he actually didn't look up and he did uh go stand over there and i used the shovel to whack a giant icicle off the thing and it fell down and hit him in the head and he fell down and there was blood and crying it was it was pretty awesome
0: so you you have some experience in this category yeah
1: uh, well, uh, So, how
0: many asshole brothers do that per year? <laughs> yeah. And it ends in death.
1: Oh, God. It's. I. I. Uh, 40. I, I'm going to say 47. 47. 47. Okay.
0: So, the options again are 350, 15, 2, or 47. 2? I'll say 15. 15? Mm. Should have gone 15. Lauren gets it. Mm. Yes. Not the icicle to the head. The answer to the question. <laughs> but. Uh,
1: <laughs> just go stand over there, Lauren. I promise it'll be really funny. <laughs>
0: I will never listen to any direct order you give
1: ever <laughs> not if i say it'll be funny you shouldn't
0: no so yeah 15 people per year die from icicles falling yeah. in the u.s huh. in the u.s so Mostly
1: many in concentrated in Florida. No. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know would it be more or would it be less because we like a lot there's a less lot,
0: population yeah. but there, we have a
1: lot more ice
0: <laughs> yeah so it, i don't know does it balance out or are we just better at dealing with ice Maybe we are just the
3: product of, you know, generations of people who have lived with ice and know to watch out for.
0: Anyway, last question. So I found a Wikipedia page that was... The entire page is a list of injuries and deaths that resulted, at least in part from taking a selfie. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine there are lots of those. (laughs) So how many 2016 selfie-related deaths are recorded on the Wikipedia page dedicated to that topic? And I I tried to go through and count only the deaths, not the injuries. Is it 15, 48, 83, or 67? And we're starting with Laura this time. 67. 67 selfie deaths. What were my options again? 15 selfie deaths, 48 selfie deaths, (laughs) Eighty three selfie deaths or sixty seven selfie deaths. It's really hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> the second one? Eighty three? Forty eight? There's forty eight. There's also forty there's also eighty three though. Do you want the second one or do you want eighty <laughs> <laughs> three? Forty eight. Forty eight, alright.
3: Say selfie deaths one more time. Selfie deaths.
1: Were any of these cameras recovered? I wanna see some of these selfies. <laughs> I don't, want to, I don't want to see the the actual deaths like
0: well I have to say a but, lot of them were from like falling into rivers and stuff so oh. a lot of the phones probably didn't recover I, I'm just imagining like a selfie
1: with somebody smiling and like a shark in the background like jumping at them or something
0: yeah the vast on majority, it, the vast majority were people slipping off of stuff they shouldn't have been climbing on right that yeah. makes sense
1: have you seen those like Russian uh, like city climbing videos
0: quit stalling mm. oh, Yeah, they'
1: they're, they're freaking terrifying. When, wearing, this is like, the GoPros. last answer we
0: need and then we're done the show.
1: Okay. It's the 43, 47, 40,
0: 48. The Let's one that on Lauren there. picked?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to end this with zero points.
0: <laughs> oh, that okay. is a possibility. So there are 83 selfie deaths ah, in 2016. Damn it. 83 people died taking <laughs> a selfie. We Should are so And quite a few people died like jumping in after people who were taking selfies and slipped in. That a That is one hell of a death. photo bomb. <laughs> Oh, dear. Boom. (laughs) No, that was just a bomb. But, I mean, people have done ridiculous things forever. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to continue to do ridiculous things whether or not they can take pictures of them. So, this isn't a result of everybody having a camera. No. No. It's just... Yeah. An amusing statistic that we can... There may... I would say that there
2: may be a little bit more distraction involved because... Like, people were always climbing stuff that they shouldn't have been climbing. Or, you know, wading into things that they shouldn't have been wading into. But now they're also trying to pay attention to the camera and get their, like face just right. So there's, I would say there's probably a little bit more distraction in some of these instances, but they still would have been having problems.
0: (laughs) Apparently the Russian government put out a guide on how not to get killed taking selfies because there was such a problem. Like, people were getting run over by cars because they were taking selfies in the middle of the street. I don't know. The score is, Jim, zero points. (laughs) Laura, one point. And Lauren, three points. Yay, I know my death statistics. Apparently. I mean, and most of these questions were basically impossible if you didn't know the numbers so
1: yeah like the, like the ranges were really tight like they yeah, weren't off by orders of magnitude in a lot of cases so I'm like I don't know.
0: You wanted a game, Newman. I, I and
1: did I gave you one. And it was delightful to be on the receiving end of the game. To be the gamey, not the game
0: Hey Jem Hey Ashlyn what are we talking about next month? We're going to Maybe. talk
1: about the top 10,
0: 7, 4 myths that Trump endorsed. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Thanks for listening to the show, folks. It's been great. Good night. Thank Good you. Night. You've been listening
1: to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just Share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey.
4: Life. Don't talk to me about life.
1: I'm really curious to hear what everybody's strategy is. I've always been kind of a Take over Australia, kind of guy, but lately I've been thinking that South America might be a bit more
0: flexible in the mid game. You just interrupted my wrist joke with your wrist joke, and I hate you a little. <laughs> it's the potential of gaining or losing something of value. We as humans, of course, value all <laughs> milk. <laughs> that is Remember. what I value. <laughs> I like milk. <laughs> Humans are also really great at focusing on things they think they can control, while ignoring all. of... <laughs> you can't ignore me. <laughs> we cannot control you either. And uh, I think Laura has some fun nutrition risks as she eats my
2: donut first. <laughs> <laughs> They're delicious, by the way. Listen. Don't blame me. I voted for Toto. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it, Newman.
1: You can go play with the baby.
3: Yes!
1: <laughs> the warrior's drink. Well, you, you are the kind old lady of the group. I am. God, I'm a windbag.